Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives. I am your host, Neil. You're listening to the second part of my conversation with Pace Davis. In this part, Pace begins with how he transformed the destructive anger and anti-authoritarianism of his high school days into a more constructive force for social activism. During his undergraduate at the University of Texas, Pace joined the group United Students Against Sweatshops. They occupied the office of the university president and got arrested, but the campaign eventually succeeded in requiring that the university make sure their sports apparel did not come from sweatshops. In this context, Pace shares his views on the capitalism of large corporations dealing with local governments and labor unions. We then discuss the culture of worshipping ambition and wealth over morality in highly successful people, as exemplified by some of the personality cults that we see in today's tech world. We move on to Pace's experiences of traveling to West Bank with the International Solidarity Movement, which he has elaborated on in a previous episode. Here, he discusses the political situation in Israel and Palestine, and their relationship with the U.S. We also talk about U.S. military foreign policy and how it's generally perceived by Americans. If you enjoy this podcast, consider supporting me by donating Dai or Ether to abhranil.eth. That's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. And so I decided to start working in this organization called the Palestine Solidarity Committee. Um, and, you know, there's two aspects. One, I felt like the work we were doing was good because we were fighting on the side of what I felt like was right, which was liberation for Palestinians, self-determination for Palestinians. And in addition to that, we I also made this incredible group of friends who I felt like were a moral force. Mm. They were all kind of turning against what was normal. Um, and I think now it's interesting in today's environment, right? It's, you know, it's 2019 now, right? We have social justice, social issues are more pervasive than they were 10 years ago, 11 years ago when I began the work. And, and, they, and, and so the group of people I met were, were basically bucking the norm. They were being the odd people out at the parties. I mean, when they were together, everyone was this, had similar opinions about some things. But if you went to a regular party and you talked about Palestine, it was like, why would you ruin this great time we're having by bringing these politics into it? And in and, and, and 2008, the norm was not necessarily being pro-Israel, but the norm was, was, was thinking of Israel as fun and Arabs as not fun. And in, co- in college language, right, in the university language, was that if you're at a party and someone's talking about their great time on a beach on, at birthright, the normal thing to do was to be like, beaches sound so cool. Tel Aviv sounds amazing. And what my what the people I met in this group were doing is instead they were saying like, tell me about this birthright of yours to go back, to go to a land you've never seen when like my friend or my mother can't ever go to the land they were born in. So like, let's talk about the word birthright. And you know, at a party that's like, you've, mm-hmm. now, you've now harshed the mellow of this party. You've now ruined the fun vibe. But I found this to be really 
um, inspiring meeting these people um, that they were kind of willing to constantly interrogate their values and and push back against the norms of others and push back against the incredible social pressure to make jokes of a certain type or to always think that everything's funny. Um, so I think I was drawn to that along with the actual specific work. I was drawn to this, these kind of people. I had never encountered them on any, I mean, I guess you could argue that my misfit friends in high school and I were kind of like this in a different way, but our, our, um, efforts were almost totally destructive. (laughs) Whereas this seemed like the constructive, it seemed like the natural path to take from being destructive to turning this anger into a constructive anger. Um, and so I think I was drawn to this like constructive anger model of social organizing. Mm. Um, so I did that for about two years with Palestine Solidarity Committee. Mm. And then was this simultaneous uh, with your studies at the university? Yeah. Okay. So I should say I took six years to get a college degree. Mm. Um, I changed my majors and then I added Arabic in my third year. And in order to get an Arabic major, to get a degree in Arabic, I had to study for an additional four years, for, for four full years. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't end up getting the degree by, I think, two classes, but I got close and I, I studied Arabic as much as I wanted, mm. which I think was the goal. It was eventually to go live in the Middle East with the Arabic program, which mm-hmm. I did not end up doing. Um, I went to the West Bank instead. But I should say that... Um, yeah, so I, I was getting involved while I was studying the whole time. I was a student the whole time. And, um, and you know, in a, in a weird way, like, I think uh, also funny enough, taking six years, going part-time my last year, and becoming very political on campus is exactly what everybody doesn't want to happen mm-hmm. with students, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like everyone wants students to get in and keep their mm-hmm. nose down and graduate in four years. So the graduation rates look good. Yeah. They don't want them to become politicized. They want them to become good workers. Mm. And I did the exact opposite. I, I saw the University of Texas as this opportunity to become the opposite of a good worker, basically. Mm. Um, so that was a really neat. I'm glad I had that experience. Um, and then my last semester at the University of Texas, funny enough, it was only a semester, but it felt like kind of like a lifetime. As I, I met these wonderful students who are a few, a few years younger than me. They were sophomores, I think maybe juniors and they uh, juniors and they were part of a group called the United Students Against Sweatshops. And, um, they were running this campaign. Uh, just a couple of them were basically working all the time on this, all their free time on it. And it was this campaign to, um, uh, basically try to get the university of Texas to, to sign on with a third party factory monitoring organization to monitor the factories that University of Texas Apparel was made in. So a little a little background on, on this would be that um, there's a famous incident where I believe it was, I believe it was Kathy Lee Gifford. It's been long enough now to where I, I, I may have misspoke on her name, but a famous person's had a clothing line that was, um, that was made and sold in the United States. But it was discovered that it was being made in a sweatshop and this is in the 1990s right and so this this sweatshop reality is suddenly thrust into the Ameri- american psyche right mm-hmm. that that these goods from abroad aren't made in factories where people are paid the wages that we expect people to be paid in the united states right mm-hmm. 
So it created this crisis, right? And so, and this is a, a really good example of, of capitalism's ability to pivot, right? In these very small moments, right? So instead of ending sweatshop conditions, right? Which we think would be the natural uh, thing that would follow finding out about sweatshops. Um, Bill Clinton teamed up with Nike and I believe Adidas and a couple other major corporations and started what's called the Fair Labor Association. So instead of allowing others to police them, they would create their own self-policing organizations and they would write the standards by which they were policed. And Bill Clinton actually was a major player in founding this movement. So that's to give you an idea of someone who's supposed to be kind of this moral leader, this president, right? Sees this problem of sweatshops and then creates a basically fake organization to deal with the problem. And so, um, um, and so uh, a group of, of like basically unions and a student organization and some, I think, international trade unions basically funded a group called the Worker Rights Consortium, which actually was a true third-party organization. And and to give the alternatives, the Fair Labor Association would call the factory a week before they came and say, we're coming by on October 5th um, to inspect the factory. So, so what the factory manager knows is to hide all the workers who might complain. And the workers are interviewed on the factory floor next to their managers about their working conditions, right? So that you'll never get a true... A, you know, kind of objective picture of the conditions in the factory. So this third party organization was started where if companies agreed to use it, they would be inspected. They would, they were, the factory had to guarantee, like say Nike had to guarantee access to any of their factories to this organization. And it was a total surprise. So they would walk up to the front door on a Monday and they would just bang on the door and say, we're the workers. We're here to look at the conditions. And then they would, they would ask for the names and, and, and addresses of the workers, and they would go interview them at night at their homes. Oh, shit. Okay. So the idea was to get an objective idea yeah. of the condition of work. So mm. there's there's some really upsides to this, and there's some problems. Mm. The way that capitalism works regarding t-shirt purchasing. So let's say you and I both want a black t-shirt. We just want a black t-shirt. We don't want it to be a nice black t-shirt. We don't particularly need someone to think that it was made in a nice place. We don't need the brand to be important. So let's say that we're looking between Hanes and Fruit of Loom, right? Mm. Now, let's say that pressure is put on Hanes to use higher wages, right? And let's say Hanes passes that cost on as um, 50 cents per t-shirt more. Mm. Well, the average consumer will just buy the Fruit of Loom shirt because it's now, the six pack is $3 cheaper, right? Mm. So it's very hard to encourage, and the, and the term is called the race to the bottom. Yeah. So if the wages rise in one country, Fruit of the Loom will leave that country and they will find a country where they can make cheaper t-shirts. Mm. And the average consumer doesn't care mm. about where their black t-shirt comes from. Now, there are consumers that do care and they can be charged a premium price in like Patagonia or, mm. or other or REI are great examples of, of seizing that market, right? Mm. But there's one area in which that's not true and that's college apparel. And so this group of students had this incredible foresight to realize that if you're a fan of the University of Texas, you are not going to buy a University of Alabama t-shirt because it's $5 cheaper. Mm. And so you can actually leverage the loyalty to the university mm. to require all of the garments that are made at all universities to be made um, honoring the labor laws of the country. And so this organization basically started with the help of some labor unions in the 90s to combat this. And they ran... 
uh, a variety of campaigns, living wage campaigns at their local universities and these anti-sweatshop campaigns. And so I signed on with this group in February of 2012, um, and they were fighting to require the University of Texas to affiliate with this third-party monitoring organization. And it was a historic battle because not a single, not a single Southern university had fallen to this a campaign attempt. It had been tried. It had been one in the Northeast. It had been on the West Coast. It had never been one in the South. And the other reason it was historic is because the University of Texas was the largest recipient of revenue from apparel licensing in the world. In 2010, I think they got $10.9 million, not off, not off apparel, but off of licensing the logo and color of the University of Texas to apparel manufacturers. So you can imagine this is huge, right? So this campaign, the staff of the United Students Against Sweatshops, the organization is really throwing everything they have to help us. Because mm. if we can win this campaign, this is the South falling effectively, right? Um, that's the idea behind it. And so I sign on and there are these like just phenomenal student organizers, so young, so talented, that end up becoming some of my best friends, some of the people I admire most in the world. And I just saw like, you know, Palestine is this very long-term kind of slow grind, right? that there's things are constantly getting worse in Palestine, even if things are getting better in the political climate of the United States, the realities in Palestine are constantly getting worse for Palestinians, right? They're worse than ever in Gaza. They are worse than ever in the West Bank, but politically the climate is shifting internally in the U S. So you're fighting a kind of a, a very long-term uh, fight for justice. But with this, it was like a, a, a start and stop of a campaign. And I was very attracted to this. And the model USAS uses is just incredible. I mean, they're they're effective, they're intelligent, they know how to build, they know how to drive people. Um, and so I, I signed on to this, and, I, and it started with these rallies and these letter deliveries to the president, and he re, kind of refused to meet with us and refused to interact with us because we were just students demanding things. Mm. And so the culmination of this campaign was we worked all semester, and eventually we... Um, uh, um, 18 of us occupied the president's office at the University of Texas and refused to leave. Mm. So we arrived at like uh, 10 or 11 in the morning. So he was in there? So so the president's office is very big at UT. So it's, you get off on, on a floor. The president's office is on an entire floor of the tower. So if you oh, could... in the main tower. Yeah. If you okay. can imagine there's a security guard, mm. there's a set of doors that can lock with a button. Mm. Then there's the all of his support staff and then there's his office itself, which is like another 25 feet back. Mm. He also has a secret exit. So if he's in the office, he can like sleep, sneak sneak out yeah. basically through a side corridor. Yeah. So we didn't make it all the way into his personal office, but we made it into the office where all of his support staff was. Mm. Um, so we occupied. And the, and the thing is, if, you know, for political purposes, it doesn't really matter if we make it in front of him or if we mm -hmm. make it in his office. Yeah. We have now occupied a space that we're not supposed to be in. Mm -hmm. We've now occupied a space where people want us out of. And so we occupied it and we did a, a tremendous campaign coordination for publicity with other students and faculty. We got a lot of support and sign on. So we were all arrested at the end of the day because we they said at five o'clock this office closes and if you're still here, it's criminal trespassing. 
And we all planned to get arrested. And what they thought is that we were going to leave because we didn't want to get arrested. But we had all the legal things coordinated and we wanted to get arrested. Mm-hmm. We wanted to use being arrested as students speaking up for workers' rights as a lever against the president. So we were arrested and a lot of times the presidents will give in shortly after the arrest, but he was not giving in. So then we like stepped up our efforts even more and we went in his neighborhood and we flyered in his neighborhood about him refusing to agree to workers' rights. We did a vigil outside of his house in front of all of his neighbors with a priest. We did a second fake sit-in in front of... Um, important donors and staff of the university on the same day as a retirement party for a major uh, staff member. And so as we picked up steam, basically what happened was we became so annoying. And this was the point, right? The point was that he was never going to give in to our demand because he didn't care. Mm. We weren't, we weren't to be taken seriously because it didn't matter that we cared about this. But once we became a huge thorn in his side, in his mind, I mean, this is a man who controls budgets in the millions and millions and millions of dollars of the University of Texas, right? This is a man who decides where hundreds of millions of dollars are spent, who, who's responsible for coordinating the raising of hundreds of millions of dollars a year, right? Uh, maybe even, you know, almost a billion, right? Um, once we became annoying enough, he agreed to sit down with us and agreed to sign on to this $50,000 a year fee to have the factory. He said, okay, fine. He basically said, oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, and we won. Uh, and, and the neat part was like, I fought it. I got to meet with the president. I was one of the four students who was in the meeting with the president arguing for this. Um, he said, I'll do some research and I'll get back to you. And he agreed to it about a month and a half later when I was already in Palestine. Um, and as the semester was coming to an end, I was graduating and I was wondering what I was going to do with my free time. And I had come into a little bit of money from my grandfather passing away. And I had, you know, never known what I wanted to do after college because I'd never thought that far. Mm-hmm. And so instead of going to work, like applying so to... So one, one quick question that I've been thinking about, though, as far as the whole the, the sweatshop ethical dilemma is concerned, uh, this kind of relates to the race to the bottom thing that mm-hmm. you mentioned. There is an argument that I've heard. It's essentially the free market argument that... Imagine that you have a sweatshop yeah. in Bangladesh uh-huh. and the conditions inside are really very miserable. But you're, these workers are not um, coming and working there um, involuntarily. Like yeah. They have chosen to come and work in this because they cannot find work anywhere mm-hmm. else. So, so, I mean, you must have encountered this argument before then. Well, why is it, where is evil? Like, well, why is it the sweatshop's responsibility uh, in a free market, you know? So, so I would, so I guess what I should say, um, the thing that argument that I find that argument misses mm-hmm. is that a sweatshop is actually not defined as a factory that violates United States of America labor laws. It's actually defined as a, as a, as a, a, a factory that violates, I think it's at least two of the local labor laws of the nation in which it's operating, right? Oh. So okay, when okay, people okay. say right. these people aren't involuntarily coming there, yeah, yeah. what they're actually doing, and, and this should also be said that most of the constitutions, many of the constitutions that were written after ours, mm-hmm. many of them that were written in the 19th and 20th century in the world actually have labor protections written into them. Mm-hmm. So the United States is one of the weakest modern nation um 
labor law, like modern nations in regards to labor laws. Mm. Mexico has paid maternity leave written into its constitution. Mm. Does that mean maternity leave is paid? Mm. No. Mm. So it's the enforcement of the laws. Mm. So we actually aren't requiring, I mean, our goal as an organization was actually never to demand that, 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 that this factory, um, say in Haiti or in Bangladesh, right, honors the labor laws of the United States of America. Yeah. It was to require that they actually honor the local labor laws. Okay, okay. And so, and so, and so one of the, the arguments this kind of capitalist, like these people aren't voluntarily their thing misses is that is that it's not actually that these companies go to this country, honor the labor laws, and abuse these people. It's that these companies actually go to these countries and they bribe officials to ignore their own labor laws. Or they come to a country and they say, well, we're going to open this factory, but your labor laws are pretty strict. Mm -hmm. So if you could turn away from your own Mm -hmm. people and their rights, Mm -hmm. we would love to operate here. And it gets even worse. It actually gets so bad that like when Haiti considered raising its minimum wage, Hillary Clinton as secretary of state personally intervened to stop the nation from raising its own minimum wage. Right. Mm. And, and I'm sure her argument was it'll drive business out of Haiti. Mm. Right. But this is a foreign nation intervening on the domestic laws of policies of a nation. Mm. And that's actually what corporations do around the world. They intervene as foreign actors. Right. They're a corporation that's from outside that country, and they and they and they twist the arm of a of a nation. So I think that that, that that I think this is an interesting thing because a lot of times it gets it gets pulled down to the simple idea of well this is capitalism, right? Mm. But I mean, that's the type of capitalism which we generally and not everyone agree is not positive. It's a negative impact on the world. And so I think it's one of those things like um, you look at Foxconn, you look at these major factory collapses in Bangladesh specifically, right? And there are workers that are calling the government, they're calling this, the, their representatives and they're saying, this factory's crack, there's cracks through the walls, there's cracks through the floors, it looks really risky in here, there's no way to get off, there's a fire, right? And according to their laws, there should be intervention, right? But because of the wealth of those in charge, no intervention ever comes. And then the factory collapses and 600 people die under the rubble, right? And then the, or, 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 you know, 100 people die or whatever. And then the company claims, well, it was a subcontractor, right? You know, yes, we were making phones there, but we didn't, it wasn't an Apple factory. It was a, it was a foreign factory, right? So we owe nothing to the workers there. Even though Apple representatives walked through that factory, even though Apple representatives have been contacted about the working violations. So there's this really good way internationally Mm -hmm. to basically continually push responsibility off on somebody else Mm -hmm. while you're actively breaking laws Mm -hmm. and regulations. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, that was our messaging around it. And I think it's, it's the messaging that I admire and that it's basically saying like, okay, if you honor the local labor laws, go do whatever that country allow you within the rights Mm -hmm. that those people have vested in their, through their constitution. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, and then, you know, and then there's the other discussion of, well, what if those labor laws make it so expensive that no one wants to operate there? Okay, well, that's a that's another, maybe another discussion. And, and, and I think that's one of the arguments that capitalists, people who are for this kind of free market operation make mm-hmm. that countries need to incentivize companies to operate there. Yeah. But that is the race to the bottom. It's that they move to the cheaper, cheaper, cheaper place until they're, until yeah. they're, until they're effectively getting their labor for mm-hmm. basically free. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think it's one of those things where like, you know, 
regulating capitalism is an interesting thing and it's a touchy thing right but um you know if you know if you think about the rate at which a worker makes a t-shirt it's not one t-shirt every hour right so if their wage is 20 cents an hour and you raise their wage to 25 cents an hour right which may actually be the difference between being able to feed their family and struggling to feed their family that doesn't mean that each t-shirt costs five cents more that might actually mean that each t-shirt costs them a fraction of one cent more to make right mm -hmm. And, and I think one of the interesting things that we see is that those costs get passed on far more than they actually cost, right? Um, and so I think it's also kind of a lie, right? Corporations are making profit. And, and, and uh, there's, a, there's an interesting uh, documentary Michael Moore made before he made Bowling for Columbine. Mm -hmm. And it was actually about this, um, I think it's about a payday, you know, payday, the candy bar. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. their factory moved overseas. Mm. So they had, they recorded record profits the year before they moved. Mm. And then they recorded record profits the year they moved. So the argument they made of, Oh, well, it's just part, we have to move to make money was interesting because when you looked at their books, right, it wasn't actually that they weren't making money. They made record profits. They just saw on the horizon, the opportunity to make more money. Mm. And, and so when a corporation's sole goal is to maximize profits, right. Yeah. Um, um, it creates this issue, but also anyone I think who's been around businesses enough knows that there's a degree of total bullshit in this argument because we know that there is wasted administrative expenses in all corporations. We know that there are people who work in marketing or work in social media or work or like the personal assistance of all of the C-level executives. Mm -hmm. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these people don't actually mind waste, mm -hmm. right? We know that they're willing to waste money. Yeah. Like it's, we know it, we see it in our public administrations. We see it in our private administrations. Um, there, are, I think there are a lot of companies in the world that could operate much leaner than they do, mm -hmm. but everyone gets to feel more important if they operate as bloated as they are at the right levels. Mm -hmm. So I think also that's like one of those interesting big lies, right? Mm -hmm. um, even oil, right? Like oil and gas pays people well enough to get them to do these dangerous jobs, but they could probably cut wages a little bit and still get people to work yeah. for them, right? Um, and then they have all of these kind of bloated level executives in oil and gas, mm -hmm. right? And those are the people who are deciding where the budget goes. So exactly. they're, they, they, they don't particularly have a lot of pressure on cutting their own, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just going to get rid of my secretary. And yeah. Like, you're not going to have like donuts and cream cheese every morning. Yeah. You know, they're the ones deciding where the money goes. It's pretty easy to kind of tighten the belts on the people that are below them. Yeah. Because they don't see them yeah. or know. So them. people on the factory floor are not the ones that are determining how the money yeah. is being spent. So. And, you know, and, and I mean, I think it's really important to say that, that, you know, I think this also this kind of the, the average person who, had, who argues this like, well, this is just the way capitalism works. So, you should include, I think they should also include that capitalism also includes killing labor leaders, right? Like capitalism traditionally in labor worldwide, not just in Honduras, mm. but worldwide, right? Historically in the 20th century and into the 21st and in the 19th century, if you were a prominent labor leader, you could actually be murdered. Mm. So like if you worked at a factory in Honduras and you were fighting for a union there, mm. right? Someone could show up to your house and shoot you in the face. Mm. So that's actually illegal, right? That's like outside of the bounds of legality, right? And so it's also interesting because a lot of times those arguments are made of like, well, this is all, this is like legal is how capitalism works. But like 
these corporations have no qualms about breaking any laws they see fit to continue to make money, right? So, so I think like it's also one of those things where, with anything, with politics, right, with any, um, with any disagreement, philosophies, right, when you have bad actors, right, that like exit the moral sphere, mm. right, that the system doesn't function, right, yeah. and so I think like, um, you know, same thing, right, is like. You, we can all talk about this idea that violence is, um, we could all say like nonviolence is the only way, right? But if, if the, the real struggle comes when someone refuses to abide by our moral agreements and they start murdering people, right? Then you say, well, okay, we can all stick to nonviolence and die, right? <laughs> or we can exit the moral sphere and we can try to bring them back inside the moral sphere, right? We have to bring them inside these moral agreements. And I think with corporations i think that there's this really false and, and i think it's been very well um i think with especially with tech i think that they have done a tremendous job of creating cults of personality around their founders um, around wealthy people in america i mean we look at we look at the average person now it seems like in the city in a city tech especially tech related they literally worship the ceos of corporations as replacements for religion right like they look at um uh what was steve uh steve jobs right this man by all accounts is actually a terrible person right like he's like he's unlikable he's rude he's dismissive he abandoned a child right i mean this by all of our accounts for who you actually want to be friends with he meets almost none of those standards right and yet the way people admire steve jobs um is uh is is pretty scary Right. And Steve Jobs didn't care about the moral sphere. Mm -hmm. And I think that corporations, um, I think that's one of the things that that is eerie. Right. Is that is that we don't admire people generally today. I mean, not not we, but I mean, many people don't admire people who are actually good people who Mm -hmm. contribute to a better world. We admire people who make incredible wealth at the expense of whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so anyway, so so the United Nations Against Sweatshops, I thought was a great organization because it actually pushed back and said there has to be some moral guidelines by yeah, which yeah. these things happen. Yeah. And we aren't actually opposed. Like, I mean, there are many anti-capitalists in the United Nations Against Sweatshops. Mm. But I, the organization was not inherently opposed to capitalism. It was opposed to these these globalization efforts that were excessive and which broke all of the laws of all of the nations they operated in for extractive purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, back to this was, yeah, sorry. <laughs> we were talking, by the way, so since you just mentioned, this is too much of a coincidence for me not to mention this right now, but a couple nights back, I was actually on some of your four ACO DMT. Okay. I have no problems saying that on okay. the podcast, but I got this idea, this sudden idea of a Molotov seminar that I want to give in the near future. Uh-huh. And it would be about this kid who came up with the idea of Ethereum, which is like this decentralized uh, world computer thing uh-huh. using similar protocols as Bitcoin does for a s- central or third party less system for uh, uh, like a... a, a Instead of trust, it's just this uh, smart contracts that yeah. that that um, settle all kinds of stuff in the, between people, like rent or or insurance or yeah. money payments and stuff like that. And a certain kind of religious cult is developing around him. 
Okay. Much to his own dislike, but it is happening. Mm. And I've, I, I know about this because I've been following it for a while. And I can see all the people, like there's people make religious imagery of this kid. Like his name is Vitalik Buterin. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call him by religious names. There are people like who wear like beads and stuff. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's kind of interesting. So I think there's a whole interesting intersection of many different things. Here. Yeah. So there's, of course, the nature of the technology that he has pioneered, which yeah. is, you know, it's, its goal is to bring power back to the people and yeah. people think of it as kind of almost like a new religion that is going to solve a lot of problems. Yeah. But there's also the kind of long tradition, which I recently came to know between Silicon Valley and like the techno religion yeah. kind of thing. And what role does, you know, psychedelics have to play in the, the, these techno religions? So yeah. I want to read a little bit more about this stuff and I want to give this talk about Vitalik Buterin is Vitalik Buterin a modern god? Yeah. And where do huh. where where do these ideas come from? Yeah. Like, what what does what does this dynamic share with uh, traditions of religion that that, yeah. that humanity is? Huh. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's yeah. cool. Yeah. No, I mean it's I mean it's something yeah. I've thought a lot about this idea that wh- who we admire, yeah, who we um. Yeah. Canonize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In our in our modern world yeah, without yeah. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. Um. So, but you were talking about, um, towards the end of college, I guess you said, you, your grandfather passed away, and yeah, and you said uh, there was uh, this financial windfall. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I was lucky enough to get $5,000, uh, mm-hmm. and I used it to buy, um, a one-way ticket to, um, to, to, to live in the West bank and work with the international solidarity movement there. Mm-hmm. Um, I had met the fa- one of the founders spoke at university of Texas when I was there with our group, we brought her. And then, um, in addition to that, another an active member of the group in 20, man, 2010, uh, came by, came and spoke. She had been active in 2009, I think. And she came and spoke and was a big, was a big influence. And I just thought they were doing really neat work. Um, they kind of fell outside of the models that I had known. Right. So they're, a they're not an NGO. They're an organization that basically functions kind of day to day through individual donations. Mm -hmm. So no one really decides the, the um, trajectory of the organization, but the organization itself. Mm. So I thought that was really neat. They're Palestinian-led, meaning that Palestinian organizations decide what they do. Mm. Not that they can be told to do anything, but that but an organization can contact them and say, hey, our village is being mm. attacked. We'd like you to come work with us. Um, and at its peak, ISM had like sometimes 100 or two, almost 200 members, I think, at its very biggest peak during the Antifada. And it had shrunk quite a bit by the time I got there. The organization fluctuated from at the smallest point, I think four, and at the biggest point, like 60 members. Mm. So I arrived in June of 2012 um, and kind of immediately encountered the reality of the occupation of the West Bank. And speaking of evil, right? I mean, this is a this is a, a really great example of the banality of evil, right? The average Israeli is not a the average Israeli doesn't go home and beat their spouse. Right, the, the the average Israeli doesn't torture their child. Right, the average Israeli isn't um, 
this movie evil, right? They aren't a master villain, right? The average really goes to work. They're, you know, they're probably about as boring as the average American is generally. They want to buy some stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the kind of Ikea trips are the, the highlight of their week. Um, <laughs> they like TV. Um, you know, they, they like nice things. They wish they were richer than they are, right? Okay. I mean, the average really, I think, is not an exceptional person, right? Any, any, any more so than the average American is exceptional. But the average Israeli thinks that a, a Muslim or Christian Palestinian life is actually worse less, less than theirs. Mm. And they think that in the balance of things, Palestinians must die for them to have freedom. That's, you know, and if you ask them in that exact way, they might say no. But every decision that the average Israeli makes politically, right? Uh, every, every decision that the nation of Israel makes politically says exactly that. Mm. And so... <laughs> The average Israeli has gone to work and watched TV and like gone swimming and made food while in many cases mere miles away, uh, you know, uh, millions of people, right, in Gaza and in the West Bank are under brutal either siege or military occupation. Many Israelis live 30 minutes from a settlement, right? So, so this would be like the equivalent of and, and then what's so interesting is the average Israeli has almost no knowledge of Palestinian life, right? Um, even though 20% of the Israeli population is Palestinian and has citizenship within Israel, mm-hmm. right? Even though there are like almost 2 million in, in Palestinians in the West Bank and there are over 2 million in Gaza, right? So the average Israeli is the distance of the distance we are from San Marcos. Mm-hmm. The average Israeli might be from a settlement. The average really might be from a military post in the West Bank, the averages really might be from the wall that divides um, sections of the West Bank from itself and then sections of the West Bank from Israel. Um, and then the average Israeli has served in the military because it's a requirement. So um, that was really something to see, right, is to see this, um, to see the mental gymnastics. I mean, and I think that it had this... Um, one of the things I experienced there was you'll see these legal systems that have been put in place to make it basically impossible for Palestinians to have justice, right? Mm. Both the average Israeli is so um, prejudiced, right? Um, and the laws are prejudiced and the systems are prejudiced and the opportunities are prejudiced, right? And, and they don't even, they don't even, they don't even apply to the same court systems for things. They aren't arrested by the same police. They aren't dealt with, right? Cause they're not citizens. They're basically considered enemy combatants under occupation, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think what you see when you're there is really just this, um, the banality of evil, the true banality of evil. I mean, right now in Gaza, like 80%, 90% of the water is now undrinkable. Children are dying from poison water, right? Um, this, there's sewage. It's just dumping into the streets, right? It's mm-hmm. dumping into the sea. It's ruining their ability to fish because they're dumping so much sewage into their own sea because they have nowhere else to put it. They aren't allowed to build anything. Concrete is not allowed into Gaza, so they aren't allowed to rebuild. Right? There's this thing you'll see posted like, um, Gazans should shelter when bombing happens. Well, there are no shelters. They aren't allowed to build them because the government would accuse Palestinians of using them for Hamas, and so there are no shelters. Mm-hmm. So when you tell, if you tell someone in Gaza to be safe during the bombing, that's not possible. Mm. It's, it'd be like sitting in Whitehall and saying, well, we're, Austin's getting bombed. Whitehall's as safe a place as any, right? Yeah. Um, and so 
this all goes on day to day and the Israeli society has decided and again not through not every day through major um, kind of decisions and they constantly reaffirm the occupation so I don't want to pretend that the Israeli society fights the occupation it doesn't at all but every day all of the myriad decisions that are made at all of the bureaucratic and military levels mm -hmm. are made to continue to extract resources from Palestinians they take their water they take their um, their soil. They take their their um, their uh, their resources, and then to continue to transfer their population into the West Bank to settle, um, and even learning being there. Um, you know, there's this really great story Israel uses. In 2005, they withdrew from Gaza, and they went to the world and they said, "Look, we withdrew from Gaza. Look how generous we are. We left Gaza." Okay, so we, we, we ended our military occupation of a place. Look how generous we are. Mm. Um, um, and, then, and then Gaza elected Hamas. And so Israel used that as an excuse to immediately put them under blockade. And so from that point forward, they've been under total siege, right? Well, one of the stories that Israel doesn't tell when they tell this story was that there were about like 30 or 40 families that were settled in Gaza. So that's not that many people, right? Mm. But these people had to be under military protection. Now, the military cost to protect only 30 or 40 families in a Palestinian area of millions of people, right, is extreme. When they remove these families from Gaza, for their own budgetary concerns, truly, I mean, for, for they pretended that it was a generous act, but what they were doing is they were making an intelligent, logical decision to say, it's very expensive to protect these couple hundred people here with, like, with you know, thousands and thousands of troops in enemy territory, right? Quote, unquote, enemy territory. Instead, we'll settle 10,000 new settlers in the West Bank as a political exchange. And that's what happened, right? Mm -hmm. So they approved thousands of new homes being built in the West Bank in exchange for these few settler families being removed. And the settler movement still was very angry. They said they were being betrayed, right? But, but I mean, this is what Israel goes around the world saying, that they're generous. But that is the actual real reality of the generosity. And I think that um, being there was this very formative experience regarding seeing kind of how mm. corporations and nations and individuals can justify all this stuff if you only look at things in the micro decisions. And mm. you say... Mm. Yeah, you know, this police shooting, this one police shooting looks like it may have been justified, right? So the, all police shootings maybe. And then you look at everything that springs out of those mm -hmm. kind of thoughts. And, and so um, so I, I was worked with the International Solidarity Movement, um, and I was the coordinator uh, for five, a little over five months of the six months I was there. Mm -hmm. And um, so I became responsible for training volunteers that came in. I became responsible for helping with some of the media stuff and uh, doing a lot of coordination with information. Mm. Um, what, are the, what are the local and international policies regarding Palestine that, that you wanted to talk about? Um, I think, you know, mm. we talk about the United States. We talk about um, Israel is an incredibly wealthy nation, but it's the largest recipient of military aid from the United States in the world. Mm. So one of the wealthier nations on the face of the earth gets more military aid from us than any other nation. Mm. And they also gets other aid, like development aid. But um, what we have in the United States politically is we have a climate in which Israel cannot be criticized under any circumstances in, in any state legislature and in the federal government. Um, we have a lobby that is incredibly powerful called um, 
APAC, which is the American Israel uh, Political Action Committee, right? And they are funded by wealthy um, donors um, who support Israel. Um, many of them are Jewish, and then, then there's also an evangelical bent to it as well. Um, but um, but th there's an interesting uh, aspect of it is that they lobby very successfully, and they run elections against people who don't toe the line. Mm. So the political climate is such that um, um, that for many years now, we actually have become as a nation have become more and more aggressive on Palestine. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that we're getting better. And I think the average individual may truly be getting better on their political views about Palestine, especially mm -hmm. in liberal circles, especially in the democratic party, the lower end, the younger parts. Um, but, um, at the upper levels, I mean, we, um, you know, uh, like, Famously, Obama was more quiet on settlements than previous presidents, including George W. Bush, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that, that I think there's this like false idea in the Democratic Party we have, people yeah. who vote for it, right? Either who are in it, support mm -hmm. it, or vote for it. The Democrats are better on all these issues. Mm -hmm. and, and when you look at international politics, you actually find often the Democrats aren't any better. Um, I think domestically, generally, we find that they have more socially... Mm -hmm. um, uh, generous positions, right? But but like what we actually find with U.S. presidents is that each president gets worse on Palestine. Mm. Each president is more uh, kind of uh, more uh, in Israel's mm. camp, right? It, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because following the Second World War, it might be seen that a very friendly relation with with Israel is kind of morally. Yeah, uh, the better thing to do, and uh, so w what is considered the more liberal um, approach to take is is just kind of because of the historical context, it's just kind of more fraught with this. It's just well, so I wonder what I I also wonder what okay. So you are a young person and you hang out in a lot of liberal groups. I wonder what kind of response you get for your views on Palestine and what you have um, done there. Are a lot of the people who vote Democrat and are liberal aligned with your views on on, on Palestine? So I think that there's a couple. Um, I guess a couple things I could say about that. One, mm. they've been, my the reaction to my views has changed considerably mm. since I began. Mm. Um, it was basically considered that you didn't talk about Palestine in polite company mm. when I began organizing. And years before that, it was even worse. Like, mm. the early 2000s, during the Iraq War, during President Bush's um, presidency, you basically were, recall you were called a supporter of terrorism mm. um, when, uh, when the Antifada was happening, right? Mm. And the thing is, is we, the average American conflated Palestine and Hamas with Al-Qaeda with Iraq, which are all rather separate entities, right? Um, they don't know anything about the Arab world. Um, that's changed. I would say that when I first started, it was kind of like, oh, don't be the bummer. I have Israeli friends, or don't be the bummer. I have Jewish friends who support Israel, mm. and like I'm friends with you, and I'm friends with them. Both mm. of your positions are valid. Mm. Um, and then there's the cocktail opinion, which is really the one that like probably irks me the most. Mm. Which is the like these are equal parties they both do bad things 
they're both equal actors in this mm. reality. Mm. Um, I don't like either one of their bad choices, mm. which is a which is a really interesting argument that's used for all kinds of purposes to basically sound and smart. I think I think it does a couple things for the individual who says it. It makes them sound no, knowledgeable. It makes them sound even keeled. It makes them sound like they've thought about both sides and they see problems with both sides and they're trying to basically offer this mm. middle ground opinion that makes everyone happy but also says something that might be true. Mm. Um, so that's the response that I feel like I still get sometimes that's like the most mm. that's the most annoying. Mm. Um, it's very much a cocktail opinion. Yeah, yeah. I don't find it to be yeah. an intellectual opinion or a thoughtful opinion. Mm. Um, I find it to be or you know, the other thing we get, I think that you get people who have sympathy. But a lot of times now, I think the conversation on Palestine has has actually shifted enough in liberal circles mm. to where supporters of Israel will have to couch it as that there are other problems with Palestine. They'll either have to bring up Hamas and terrorism. Mm. That's like the first thing if they're, if they're ardent supporters of Israel. Mm. They will only refer to Hamas. They won't refer to the West Bank at all. Mm. They will only refer to Gaza, and they will refer to Hamas's original charter, which called for the destruction of the state of Israel. Mm. Hamas's charter was amended several years ago to mm. take that out. Mm. Okay, so it's not the current charter of Hamas. Hamas has all kinds of problems, but mm. just factually. Um, they don't know that, though, because it's not a talking point. Mm. Um, and then the other one you get is people who don't want anything to change mm. will say things like, yeah, it's really sad what's happening to the Palestinian people, but they are really terrible to women mm. or but mm. they like need to deal with their regressive islam mm. or but you know they're not helping themselves mm. or but if they were nonviolent things would be different um and all of those are like you can those i think are are are, are statements that you find kind of in liberal circles that are like basically mm. i think it's a way to say I, I don't actually want anything to change i don't care at all if this changes um but they um but they, uh, I think they, they miss the point, right? Mm. Which is that, that, that like there are people all over the world who are liberated, who have domestic abuse issues or conservative religious issues or, mm. you know, whatever. And that people, Palestinians have been nonviolent for significant periods of, of their existence as, a, as a, an oppressed people vis-a-vis -vis Israel. And that right now they're, championing uh, a movement called Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, which is totally nonviolent, And it's being fought harder uh, than they've been fought in many ways before. Mm. Um, to give you an example, Airbnb. Okay, so Airbnb <laughs> banned Airbnbs in settlements in the West Bank. So Airbnb did not ban Airbnbs in Israel. Airbnb acknowledged that Settlements are illegal under international law and that they shouldn't allow settlers to host rooms in f occupied foreign territory, right? So they banned Airbnbs within the West Bank. They also did not allow Palestinians to use Airbnb. So effectively, Palestinians weren't allowed to rent their homes that were legal. Mm. And, and Israelis were allowed to rent their illegally settled homes. Mm. So Airbnb simply honored international law. And Airbnb mm. says they don't rent homes in contested territory. That's like one of their, their ethics guidelines. Mm -hmm. So the response to that decision, not the decision to ban rentals in Israel, but the decision to ban it, uh, rentals in um, the West Bank, the occupied West Bank, 
is that the state of Texas is passing a law, or maybe already did pass a law this legislative session, making it impossible to get reimbursed as a state employee for staying in an Airbnb. That's actually true. I got that email from my department staff a couple of days back. So it did pass. Yeah, because uh, you know we go to different states and mm-hmm. cities for conferences, no. and sometimes people don't want to stay in the conference hotel because it's more expensive. Yeah. And we just got this email saying, hey, you can't stay in Airbnbs anymore. You're not going to be refunded. Yeah. But I didn't know that it had anything so to do with it. Yeah. So that's it. So you can imagine, this is an interesting thing. This is a nation... Uh, this is a state prioritizing a foreign nation. Uh, the feelings about a foreign nation, mm-hmm. allegiances to a foreign nation, mm-hmm. and not even punishing Airbnb because they actually boycotted a nation. Mm-hmm. Punishing Airbnb for acknowledging that they were violating, that they were in helping mm-hmm. violate international law. Mm-hmm. Right? So this is the level of vitriol against the Palestinian nonviolent movement mm-hmm. <laughs> for freedom and liberation. And it's one of those great examples of um, the way BDS is is talked about mm-hmm. in pro-Israel circles is that it seeks to eradicate the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if if like you think about you know about South Africa the apartheid ending right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. If if white people having absolute political authority and 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 unequal power was eradicating the state of South Africa, then yes, BDS seeks to eradicate the state of Israel in the same way that the anti-apartheid movement mm. sought to eradicate the state of South Africa. Mm. You can eradicate a political entity without killing a single person. Yeah. You can actually eradicate a political entity without particularly harming a single person, mm. unless you consider harm to be mm. that they don't have total political privilege and authority. Mm. And so, yes, that's what the BDS movement does seek, mm-hmm. but it's being... Um, but I think that politically we are hearing it talked about more as actually killing Israelis. Mm. The BDS seeks to kill all Jewish Israelis, which is which is hilarious, mm. but that's how it's spoken. And that's the level in this country politically that we're still at. Yeah. Um, so um, that's concerning. And I think that, you know, and I think that, I mean, it's, it, you know, we just make strange, I think people, when they're working again, like in these little movements towards evil, right? Mm. They make strange bedfellows, right? They make these micro decisions that that land them with like very ugly actors, right? That land them with 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 like hideous people they otherwise would never want anything to do with, but because politically you have an agenda, you have the same agenda, mm-hmm. um, and that's what's kind of happening politically regarding Palestine is that is that Democrats and Republicans actually try to see who's more rabidly pro the because let's I think it could be called pro Israel, mm-hmm. but le, but I think the way that it should be talked about in this nation is it's not actually pro-israel it's pro the death of the death and and ethnic cleansing of palestinians mm. because being pro-israel because all of israel's national policies are geared towards settling the west bank and besieging gaza right so if you are pro-israel as it stands as a nation state today you are inherently anti-palestinian life mm. because if if all of the gears, if every university that's funded by the state of Israel is funded to make projects on things like how many calories a Palestinian Gaza needs to stay alive, or the research universities is how to best um, keep Palestinians uh, docile in the West Bank as you settle it, or how much water can we extract from the West Bank, then the BDS movement makes perfect sense because you could actually argue that every cog of the nation of the state of Israel not every individual, but every political cog, every academic cog, every university, it all turns 
with a specific purpose to oppress and ethnically cleanse Palestinians from the land that it wants. Mm. And, and Israelis would argue that's not true. It's just a war between two peoples, except that one of those peoples has almost no might, has almost no money, right, in the grand scheme, has no military superiority, no power. They have, um, and that they are totally at the, at the, at the mercy of this, of this occupying force. Um, and so I think that one of the things that I think other people want to see shift too, and I do, is I want to see any pro-Israel stance actually talked about kind of what it is, is an anti-Palestinian life stance. Um, because if you don't, if, if someone talks about Israel in a positive way and refuses to acknowledge the settlements, then they're effectively saying the settlements are okay. Mm. And they're effectively supporting the building of more settlements. Because there is no, and this is one of the things that people, I think, become astounded by, but really need to realize, is that there's this idea that there's a diversity of public opinion in the state of Israel. There is not a large... If you, by diversity you mean how brutal should the occupation be or how many people have to die, there is diversity in that but if the if the if the question comes like, of if you ask the question of should Palestinians have equal rights in the state of Israel, the diversity disappears, and so that diversity happens at a narrow band, and I think that's we see that here, and I think this is the reason I say I would say that Israel is not exceptional, because we see that lack of diversity in the United States regarding our foreign policy, mm. right? You don't hear conversations that say should you didn't hear conversations around the Iraq War that said should George Bush be tried for war crimes? And you didn't have a diversity of opinion. That, that question was never asked. Mm. Even though this man had invaded a nation, had, had convinced a, na a nation, our nation, to invade a foreign nation on false mm. claims, knowing they were false, right? Which seems like kind of the definition mm. of something that someone could be tried for war crimes for, mm. right? To say the Iraqis have weapons of mass destruction and they were tied to Al-Qaeda, which, which, which perpetrated 9-11. None of those being true at all, actually. Mm. And he knowingly said that, and Colin Powell knowingly said that in front of the United Nations, and Donald Rumsfeld knowingly lied about it, right? Dick Cheney, everyone, right? And there was never, ever once on a major national news station a conversation between two talking heads that said, should we arrest and prosecute any of the top-level military uh, officials or government officials for war crimes for violating the human rights of a foreign nation so we talk about diversity of opinion I think and, and that's one of the really interesting things I think that that is lacking and makes you know countries like that that, that drives my um, kind of interest in foreign policy and politics is that we pretend that a diversity of opinions is bring the troops home or keep them there or but it's not like mm -hmm. Let's talk about Iraqi lives. Mm -hmm. It's let's talk about how many Americans are dying. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you feel about Americans? How do you feel about American troops suffering? How do you feel about America's being embarrassed by being involved in a war? Mm -hmm. And it's never actually. Let's talk about the fact that 300,000 to a million Iraqis have died. Right? Mm -hmm. It's never like what, what you know. What's the opinion on those things? Right. It's never couched in the lives of others or our foreign policy is all. Even even around Trump, one of the, the 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 scariest things I think that we see among Democratic voters, right? Who who I think in the cities too, these are educated, very intellectual Democratic voters, is we don't actually see them talking about 
So we, we, they talk about Donald Trump as an embarrassment. They talk about Donald Trump as, as embarrassing, as annoying, as, as like the guy that keeps putting his foot in his mouth, as the guy that says really gross things, right? And, and it's not that nobody's talking about him in this other way, but it's, it's alarming that the primary thing that Donald Trump is for the, for the average wealthy or middle class, middle upper class intellectual American is an embarrassment. Mm. And, and when Obama was president, right, more deportations happened under Obama than had ever happened in the history of the United States, right? Obama was responsible for, for, for growing the drone striking program, for bombing sovereign nations sometimes around the clock without mm-hmm. declaring war on them. He was responsible for continued rendition, which is taking someone from foreign soil, mm-hmm. kidnapping them, flying them through a friendly foreign country to another foreign country that still tortures and letting that country torture them for you. He was responsible to this very big growth of our military, uh, flexing of our military might around the world in ways which weren't passed through Congress, right? Actually, I remember the same day that the Boston Marathon bombing happened, it was kind of front page news, but um, several pages later, there was a small article I remember reading where in a drone strike, in Afghanistan, it killed a whole like wedding party mm-hmm. and left maybe one or two people alive. The rest of all this, the civilian wedding party, yeah. a bomb was dropped on them. Yeah. And I was thinking, so look at this Boston Marathon bombing. How many people died there? And let's, I mean, that's not a fair comparison yeah. necessarily, but there is so much power in in the control of the narrative yeah and the united states wields a lot of power not just of course it will control the narrative in its own country every country does that yeah but it also controls the narrative in many other countries absolutely um whether directly or indirectly there are many other reasons that you know, the United States might not have to exert any direct influence in order mm-hmm. to control the narrative elsewhere, but there may be so many other reasons why why that same um, kind of West-centered or the U.S.-centered narrative is the one that is echoed yeah. everywhere. Um, I was just imagining, if, this, if the table turned, for the moment imagine that an Afghani drone landed a bomb on an American wedding, the world would yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> it would be crazy. It's it's unimaginable. Yeah, I mean we we think about nine you think about nine eleven three thousand yeah. Americans died right, yeah. and the blood that we've spilled in retribution for that attack is is a hundred and fifty three hundred times the lives, mm. you know. I mean, it's hard to even know. We can't even calculate because someone is is secretive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and so it's 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 alarming because I think politically, when I think about politics, it's really interesting because we really are, um, you know, even if people are getting smarter or wiser or socially more, you know, kind of uh, uh, adept, you know, we really don't. 
you know, it's it's interesting because even in like kind of left leaning, you know, more liberal, further left circles, is you'll literally hear you'll hear this, um, you'll hear these policies of the government talked about, and they're very still talked about in these like kind of Republican Democrat, like good Democrat, bad Republican, right? Mm. Ways, right? Or something, or you know, the the separation of families happens, and this is a this is a big deal. It's not a small thing, right? This is serious, but. The outrage, the money raised when the term separation of families hits the American psyche is, is, is eclipses in, in magnitude, right? Mm. Tenfold, who knows, a hundredfold, the money raised for Iraqi mm. victims of the war, our war. There, it eclipses the money raised for Afghani victims of our war. It, it eclipses the money raised for Yemeni victims. Yemenis are dying right now in, 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 in Syrians, too, in really horrifying conditions, Starva real true starvation, which is, which is you know, famine. In 2019, people are dying of not eating. And, and, there's, and there's really no idea in the American psyche that this is our fault. Mm. It's like, or it's like this, or it's like this kind of like inconvenience. And I think that really speaks, just like in Israel, it speaks to this idea of Israeli exceptionalism truly deep down the belief that a Jewish Israeli life is worth more than a Muslim or Christian Palestinian life. And, tr and, and truly, I think even you could divide it in like Western versus Eastern. Truly the idea that a Western intellectual life is more valuable inherently than a brown Eastern life, right? Mm -hmm. And we see the same thing in the United States. And, it, and, you know, for example, we wouldn't drone strike France, right? But we will drone strike Yemen, Pakistan, we will drone strike. We will bomb Cambodia when we're not even at war with them in Vietnam, and we won't say anything, and no one will even bat an eye. And uh, and even soldiers, they'll come home, and having killed people in these nations, and we and we even talk about their suffering as the burden put on them, mm. right? Not not the burden that's been put on other people across the world, but the burden placed on them specifically, right? Mm. Um, and you know, I mean, I don't know if that'll ever change politically, mm. but it's really. I mean, I think if you think about... It's kind of interesting, though, that in a previous podcast that I did with uh, uh, Ian Benewis, who was a Black Hawk fighter pilot in the war on drugs, he said towards the end of the podcast he had some views on uh, war as a, as a political mechanism. And he said that the decisions are made here by politicians, but we are the people who have to go yeah. and fight the war. And then we are the people who end up with lifelong trauma because we have had to see the things that you guys will never want to see and I don't wish anyone else to see. Mm -hmm. um, he, he talked about like his friends who like saw their friends dying or killed children and then you know you have to live with that for the yeah. rest of your life. And he said that he believes that the that using war as a as a political tool I mean its days should be over by now yeah but it isn't and it's he said something kind of interesting he said we are the people that go into war I feel like veterans are the ones who have to come back and send this message to the rest of society that we can't do this anymore yeah um, because we bear the full brunt and force of what it means to go to war and and fight um, but anyway yeah I was just yeah, it's a. Uh, I mean, no, I agree with you. I mean, it's really interesting. The, um, the, uh, I mean, but it is interesting that the, the you know the average veteran comes back and instead is like rah 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 America. How dare you say anything against America? Mm -hmm. 
But if you ask, you know, it's it's kind of odd because they have this kind of allegiance. You know, I've had friends who are veterans, and, and, and if you ask them point blank, like, what did you think about being in Afghanistan? And they're like, what the hell are we doing there? Mm-hmm. Our government has no idea what it's doing. All mm-hmm. the news was a lie. Whenever they said we were winning, it was a total BS. Mm-hmm. It was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they'll be like, these liberals, you know, I mean, and it's interesting because they'll basically be like, these lame liberals, like soft liberals, don't understand, you know, or, or like basically they fall into this like rah 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 America trap when they've been betrayed by America to a degree that the average American can't even imagine. Mm. They grew up, they, and mostly they grew up poor, mm. right? And they were incentivized to join the army because it was their chance out of poverty. Mm. And that their American political leadership, and that includes Democrats, right? Mm. The Iraq War was pretty unanimous, right? Mm betrayed them had them go and commit war crimes mm. right and then and then and then all got to live great lives mm. and they sleep wonderfully right like that's the other thing right is like the fact that hillary clinton can sleep and the fact that barack obama can sleep at night, the fact that george w bush can sleep comfortably at night is is really a testimony to how flawed our our mm. political system is right mm. Like, you have veterans who come out who don't sleep ever again. They, they get drug addictions. They die. They overdose. They become homeless, right? Mm. But the fact that, like, you know, these, you know, these figures, Donald Rumsfeld can just go home and sleep fine. Mm. And he's either a testament to their psychological um, personality disorders or mm. whatnot, or mm. truly about how we've offset mm. these costs. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is that there's no conversation about how Iraqis sleep at night mm-hmm. after losing multiple family members, right? Or, or you know, having ISIS come into one of their towns mm-hmm. after everything went on for so long yeah. and, you know, and, yeah. and put, their, put, their, put their family into sex slavery, et cetera. Like, we don't mm-hmm. even talk about those mm-hmm. realities. Thank you for joining us in this conversation. In the next part, we discuss the question of what is an effective welfare policy. I hope you enjoyed visiting the Room of Lives today and take care until next time.